This week on Life and Faith. Faith opens mouths and grounds and skies and wombs and tombs and hearts to fresh starts and fresh words that speak of things impossible. An opinion you can change, like you change a shirt, but a worldview is something like your skin color. It's part of who you are. I want to be able to read for two hours with no one interrupting me. I said, I know what I'll do will be heretical, but I don't want it to be blasphemous. Welcome to Life and Faith from the Centre for Public Christianity. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Natasha Moore. And this week it's World Poetry Day, which will mean nothing to probably most of us, let's be honest. But stay with us. What we've got for you today is a feast for your ears. Whether you think of yourself as a poetry person or not, we really think that listening will be a rich and perhaps surprising experience for you this week. Yes, the poems that you're going to hear today are respectively about an ancient city, about justice and injustice, about mushrooms and motherhood. Mm. And these poets are not necessarily who you might think of when you think of poets, if you think of poets. One did grow up the son of a poet, but another says that her parents weren't big readers, and the third has worked for more than 20 years as a plumber. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. Now, Natasha did these interviews. Here is the first of our three poets. My name is Erin Martin Sessions. I use my middle name because there's another Erin Sessions who lives locally and I'm friends with her family members, it turns out. So I started using my middle name in case it got confusing for people. But then people get confused by why I use my middle name. And I mean, I like it. It's a nice French name. It's a little unusual. Why not embrace it? I'm sticking with it now. You're committed. Now. Yeah. yeah. Erin Martin Sessions. Erin is a mum. She's working on a PhD. She's going for ordination in the Baptist Church. And she also works in equality and inclusion for the Australian College of Theology. She cares about justice and academia and theology. Why are you a poet? I think the answer is, is maybe not to the why question so much as I've always been a poet. I don't recall not being one, but also this this compulsion, I guess, that I have to be. So some of my earliest memories are my dad reading The Man from Ironbark to me, which is this really bloodthirsty, not child appropriate kind of Australian <laughs> bush poem. But I loved it. And so like that was the equivalent of a bedtime story for me growing up was I would request Benjo Patterson's The Man from Ironbark. So I just remember hearing and reading poetry from as early as possible and then starting to write it from as early as possible as well. And my my parents weren't really big readers. And so I just started grabbing things from around the house, whatever I could find. And dad had his complete works of Shakespeare that his mum had bought for him when he was in high school before he was kicked out. And so he just was hanging on to this complete works of, of Shakespeare. So I started reading that and I realised there was this whole world of poetry outside of Australian bloodthirsty bush poetry. Um, I think I just, I've just imbibed poetry my whole life. And so I guess it just felt really natural to start writing it. Awesome. Could you read us a poem? Yeah. Um, so I had the 
privilege a couple of years back of going to Israel. Um, and so we we're on this kind of study tour looking at historical sites and sites from the Bible and being the giant nerd that I am, I filled my suitcase with books, but not necessarily only historical books or theological books or whatever I was supposed to be studying at the time. I just packed my bag full of poetry because one of my favourite Australian poets, Dorothy Porter, had travelled through the Middle East and gone to the Holy Land and written these beautiful, beautiful poems. And, you know, so I brought kind of her collections along with me and then I'd heard that Israel's best poet or most beloved poet is um, a poet called Yehuda Amakai. And so, you know, I bought his kind of selected works in anticipation for the trip and packed it in my bag. And so I was wandering around the old city of Jerusalem reading Yehuda Amakai's poetry and it just made the city all that more alive and timeless at the same time. And so it felt like all of this history and theology and literature were all colliding in this kind of beautifully starlit, because of course it was, <laughs> so a poetic night walking around the old city. And so I had to write a poem. I just had to. So now that I've built it up that much, no pressure. <laughs> Apologies if you do not like it. So this one is called The Old City. Poets come in the evening into the old city and they emerge from it pockets stuffed with images. And that's from Yehuda Amakai's Jerusalem 1967. Your poetry tucked into my pocket, the old city beckons. Her cobblestone quarters hold history and the everyday together in doors and windows. She is awake tonight, staring at the ceiling from her sheets time has dishevelled, listening to the rain like a song and wondering if God leaks in with the rain. She thinks of pure laughter, the quiet chaos of love, and how war divides the world into wilderness, city, and sea. Out of time and out of tune, the night surges on while the city whispers, when you see the face of God, I am changed. Watchmen walk her walls and sound her alarms. She's tired of trouble, but more tired for having loved. She will keep you like she keeps the Sabbath. Want to listen again? You can hit that back button to take you back 60 seconds or so to the start of The Old City. Or here's our next poet. My name is Drew Jackson, and uh, I live in New York City in lower Manhattan. I'm a pastor here in a neighborhood called East Village, and uh, spend my time Hanging out with my family, I have two uh, seven-year-old twin daughters, and my wife Janae, we're, we're here, and uh, we play a lot of basketball, we hang out, and just enjoy the city. Yeah. Tell me, why are you a poet? Mm. I love discovering what words can do. It's fun for me. There's a playfulness to it that is, I think, sort of taps at something deep in me that's like, primal, childlike, that I love to sort of see those things put together. But I've always been drawn to it, um, even from when I was younger. I, it started, I think, for my with my love for hip-hop as a genre and the way that the, the sound of it and the way that words could rhyme and what those words could do. 
and then that grew over the years. And my mom was also a poet, so I come by it naturally. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's also become a spiritual practice for me over the years, where just the practice of writing, because for me, poetry, so much of poetry is about presence, about being present to a particular moment, being present to my own interior landscape or the things that are happening in the world. And so just that spiritual practice of presence and, and bringing that into words has been really healing for me. Your first volume of poetry is just out. Yes. It's called God Speaks Through Wombs, which is a startling title and image. Mm-hmm. How did this come together? Yeah, so this is um, poetry that is in conversation with the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Luke. And these poems, I like I said, I didn't actually start writing this collection to write a collection of poetry. It was more, I was just, I was writing because this was something I... I felt like I needed to do. I started writing it during lockdown, pandemic lockdown, right at the beginning. And so we're here in Manhattan and, you know, all we hear outside of our windows is sirens. And, you know, and so I, I needed something during that time to ground me, to center me. Poetry, I say, found me in a new way during that time. So with our church during that time, we were spending some time in the Psalms and the Psalms, it's broken up into five books across the 150 chapters. And each of those books is said to be in conversation with the themes of the books of the Torah, you know, the first five books of the Bible. And so I started to just get curious. One, I wanted to read the Psalms in a new light. And so we were in book two of the Psalms. And I started reading it with the backdrop of the book of Exodus. And the Psalms sounded very different to me. Um, They weren't just sort of individual sort of pietistic things, but they were speaking about liberation, freedom, God's desire for those things and our yearning for those things. And so then I said, well, what what would it sound like? What would it feel like if poetry were to rise out of the gospels today? So I just let my curiosity and imagination take over from that point and started exploring with the gospel of Luke. And I chose the gospel of Luke because Luke is already interested in this question of bringing those voices who have been marginalized to the center of the story, bringing those voices forward. Luke has often been called the gospel of women because there are more women who are prominent in Luke's gospel than any of the others, or or the gospel of the poor for the same reason. And so I just wanted to explore that with Luke and uh, see where, where it took me. So this poem is called The Waters of My Weeping. And this poem is written in reflection on Luke chapter 3, verse 20, which is where we hear that Jesus' cousin John has been arrested. And that's all we hear. One of my brothers, my cousins, added to the number of your incarcerated masses, one in three of us. Unarmed? Yes. A threat? Yes. To your abuse of power and the way you sit so comfortably in your palace while we struggle to eat out in these streets. But in this hour, I weep. Again. For this innocent man baptized into your carceral system. Immersed into this jail with no bail. I am forced to witness this unholy sacrament, 
this state-sponsored religious act. And for what? Something about his person disturbed you. Maybe by passing him through these waters, you will convert him to the faith of unsacred silence, one way or another. I'm sorry that it frightens you when we fight for our humanity. But tonight, I cry. These tears have become my food. I dip myself in the pool of the waters of my weeping. For my brother. For my cousin. For all of us. Until they stop locking us up. Do you want to tell me about the writing of that poem? So this poem, like I said, is a reflection on the the part of the narrative where, where Jesus finds out that his cousin John has been arrested by the authorities. It's a verse that typically we would read over that's sort of like transitioning the narrative. But as I read it, I stopped because what was happening for me was I felt like I was being brought into this intimate moment with Jesus. And I needed to have a conversation with Jesus about this. Um, one of the things here in, here in the United States, one of the realities that has come with racial injustice over the years is the way that it has, it, it has changed form and shape over, over the years. And one of the, the manifestations of that in the 20th century was the development of mass incarceration and how that project of mass incarceration has very intentionally targeted the black community. I mentioned in that poem, I, I say a line, I say one in three of us, and that's a reference to a statistic. One in three black men between the ages of 18 and 35 are in the prison system. And that statistic can be interpreted many ways. Uh, but for me, as I look at it, it's either you have the option to say that something is wrong with black men, that black men are just prone to being criminals, or you can say that something is really wrong with this system and we need to, we need to look at it. Um, so I was, I was just wrestling with all of those things. I was taken to a moment for me, when I was doing some, some pastoral work with some college students um, when I was out in Los Angeles, and we took a group of black college men away for a retreat for the weekend. And I invited some folks to come and join us. It was, uh, I wanted it to sort of be an intergenerational kind of space. So my dad flew out from the East Coast. My father-in-law flew out. Uh, another friend of mine came and we just spent this weekend together. But one of the things that we did was we wanted to create some space for lament. And during that time, we asked the question, how many of you in here know someone at present who is in the prison system? And every single person in that room raised their hand. And at that moment, we all just looked around and there was just grown men just in tears weeping. And so I was taken to that moment and found this real intimacy as I'm reading Luke with Jesus, because for Jesus, one, this was his cousin, right? So this is, this is close for him, but it's also not unfamiliar, 
right? This was something that he would have seen happened more than once, right? His people being arrested by the Roman authorities because they were perceived as a threat, because they were perceived as something, right? So I was just, I, I just felt like I needed to sit in that moment and weep with Jesus in that moment. And I wrote that at a time when there was so much going on here. It was right after the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and just the so much that was happening around police violence and brutality and the nation's reaction to those things. And so I'm sitting in all of that. And this is one of the poems that came out of that time for me. This is Life and Faith, and we're taking World Poetry Day as an opportunity to talk to some poets, to hear some of their work, and to ask them, why poetry? Next up is Jono. My name is Jonathan McEwen, although everyone calls me Jono. Um, I'm a plumber. In the past, I've run a plumbing business for about 20 years. I've recently sold my business, and I now work for the guy who, <laughs> who bought it, so I'm still a plumber. Like Aaron and Drew, Jono started writing poetry early on, somewhere in his early teens. Over time, he started working with more structured forms of poetry, like sonnets. And these days, he mostly writes haiku. Some haiku are single word, just one single word. They're extremely compressed and you have to choose your, your word very carefully if, you, <laughs> if you're going to be that concise. But the beauty of haiku is that you can compose them in your head when you're driving or when you're walking or, and sometimes they just come to you almost fully formed. Other times, you know, you sort of labour away at them for ages trying to just get all these things into a very small amount of words. So my lifestyle actually almost chose the form that I ended up writing in. Jono's just published his first collection of poetry. It's called Genesis, and it's a mix of haiku and hyben. That's H-A-I-B-U-N, hyben. Lots of us are familiar with the tiny poems called haiku. A hyben goes back to a famous 17th century Japanese poet called Matsuo Basho, who started incorporating haiku into a longer reflection in prose, often it's travel accounts, often about the natural world. A haiben is all about the relationship between the haiku and its prose context. The poem that I was planning on reading is one that began with a haiku, um, and that haiku came out of a memory that I had that goes back to my childhood at a time where I, I actually had the measles. <laughs> I was just a kid, I was probably in primary school or something like that. And I remember it quite vividly because it was it was the Easter show. And my brother and my dad had gone to the Easter show. Originally we were all going to go, but because I got measles, I wasn't allowed to go. And so mum decided to stay home with me. We were living on our farm out at Silverdale near Warragamba Dam at the time. And it had been raining as it often is around Easter time. I was actually feeling quite okay, even though I still had all the signs of measles. And my mum says, oh, do you want to go mushroom picking? I'd never been mushroom picking before. I'd seen mushrooms, obviously, but uh, I'd never, apart from kicking them over and <laughs> having a bit of a look at them from time to time and playing with the puffballs and other kinds of fungi, I'd never really paid that much attention. 
And so mum and I set off and we walked down the valley and up the other side and we and we found all these wild field mushrooms growing in the paddocks and picked them and we brought them back to the the caravan and mum fried them up in butter and put them on toast and and I, I remember the the flavour of them quite distinctly as well. So all these associations came back to me when I wrote this haiku, which is simply mushroom picking, something about his mother he never knew. And it came back to me initially just as a simple um, thought, really. I just thought it was something about my mother that I never knew at that stage, that she was this kind of person that would just walk off into a field and find food <laughs> and, and bring it back, you know, and it, and it was just a, a real revelation to me of an aspect of my mother that I, you know, as a child, you, you get born and, and your mother is just your mother. She's just there at face value. You never imagined that she actually existed before you did <laughs> and that she had experiences and knowledge these things you sort of just take for granted, but you don't really appreciate. And so this was just the, one of the first little glimpses into all that hidden aspect of what my mother was for me. The poem Jono's going to read is called Mycelium. For those who don't know what mycelium is, it's the underground network of fungi that exists and interconnects and interacts with plants and trees and root systems and the soil itself. And the, the fungi that we see that we know as mushrooms and toadstools that appear are just the flower of the, the mycelium. And this seemed to me to be a very apt image that sort of resonated with the concept of motherhood itself as, you know, we just see these little manifestations at times, but there's all this hidden stuff that goes on in motherhood. Mycelium. As a kid, you never suspect the vast invisible network beneath your feet. They're just there after rain, then gone again. Natural parts of the world that come and go without saying. You don't consider them as fruit or think of what strange tree. The countless times I said penicillin when doctors asked if I had allergies without the slightest inkling or curiosity. I first began to wonder when I noticed those magical looking red and white spotted ones the same that used to pop up beneath the row of old pine trees at our farm, growing miles away in the mountains beneath a similar row of trees. And this old guy at church, Doc Aberdeen, I thought he was just a normal kind of doctor, even after I went to his home. Paintings of all kinds of bizarre and brightly coloured fungi were hung on every wall. My wife paints these, he said when he noticed me looking. Even so, it wasn't till his funeral that I learned he was a doctor of mycology, that his wife used to illustrate the specimens he collected, that he'd been hospitalised several times after sampling minute quantities. Mushroom picking. Something about his mother he never knew. The different elements of the hyben may seem unrelated, but they spark a bunch of associations for the reader or the hearer the more that you think about them. Jono's poetry connects lots of different things for him. I wanted to know how both his day job and his faith feed into his writing. In a surface kind of way, just mushroom picking, it's just a simple activity. It seems, you know, uh, like there's not much to it, really. You just walk out and pick mushrooms. But it also connects into motherhood and to 
just other aspects of our life that we take for granted. Um, for me, I have a, a sense of God's presence in the world. And the more I've lived with this sense of God's presence, the more I've started to, um, I guess, appreciate how modest and how unpretentious God is. I've heard some critics of religion say things like, you know, what kind of an egotistical maniac would demand that people worship him, you know? <laughs> but for me, that's not exactly the way God comes across in experience. You know, there might be some religious texts that seem to give that impression, but the reality of God as we experience that presence through his revelation of himself, not just through scriptures, but through creation itself, through the natural world that we're given to inhabit, is just done without any fanfare. And it's done whether or not we're good or bad. We don't have to do anything to benefit from the earth. We're not chided if we do things, although obviously, you know, we're seeing with the climate crisis that there are consequences to abuse of the natural world. So I guess my book itself, I think, has a overarching or an underpinning sense of deity and of presence of God in different ways. And, and so the mycelium has seemed to me to be a, a good sort of entry point into that mystery of the divine. What does plumbing have to do with your poetry? <laughs> plumbing is a very physical trade, but it's also one of those things kind of like the mycelium it's like the mycelium of the built environment. <laughs> it's all these hidden pipes and things that people just come to take for granted after a while. They don't really consider where their poop goes when they <laughs> when they flush, you know, but it goes somewhere, you know, and they're just glad about that. And they don't really consider how, you know, all the water just comes out their tap. It's just a, like a little kid grows up with water coming out the tap and they just take it for granted and very few of them think beyond the surface of the tap. So, so it's given me a kind of physical appreciation of depth and hiddenness and the way in which things are concealed, of the importance of staying grounded. Like I am actually a very, uh, the kind of person that will easily just live in my mind. I'm a kind of Gnostic in that sense, you know, <laughs> that will easily just um, live in the, in the realm of ideas. But plumbing has really given me a physical connection to both work and my own body that has forced me to come to some kind of reconciliation between this flighty mental um, side that just wants to remove itself from all the awkward matter and stuff that you have to deal with in the physical world at times, the repulsive, the, the aversions that we experience from the smells of things. You know, at times there are some very beautiful and attractive things, of course, but there's also a lot of very physically disgusting stuff that plumbers get to deal with <laughs> on a daily basis. So uh, for me, working out some kind of synthesis, which I think is what selfhood is really about, is it's about creating a synthesis between a number of um, seemingly disparate elements like the psyche and the physical, and to somehow bring those together as ultimately and actually being um, belonging together. But to do that in your own experience is, I think, part of the process of becoming the self that you are. Before we go, we've got a bonus for you at the end here, an extra poem from Drew. This is called Faith Opens Mouths, and it's inspired by Luke chapter 1, verse 67 to 80, which is a song of praise and prophecy on the birth of John the Baptist. 
Faith opens mouths, unclenches jaws and minds that could not fathom the chasm between my hopes and what's actually possible being closed. Because old dreams don't resurrect or sprout anew, they remain barren where and when they passed away. But faith opens mouths and grounds and skies and wombs and tombs and hearts to fresh starts and fresh words that speak of things impossible. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart, and Natasha Moore. And we hope you found this poetry episode as special as we have. The poets featured in this episode were Erin Martin Sessions, Drew Jackson, and Jonathan McEwen. A big thanks to them for sharing their work with us. We'll put in the show notes where you can access more of their poetry. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, we would love for you to share it with that person who you know wants more poetry in their life, whether or not they realize it. And do leave us a rating and a review if you haven't done that yet. Next week. There's a lot of, I think, identity issues that happen for us. As we get older, we realize this isn't a good or a bad thing. It just is the way that I am and it can be good or bad.